All right, so here we are attempting to do something a little different as always. Um, today we're going to have Sophie, better known as Odin Scrotum, on Instagram. She's going to be talking about the Vikings uh, in the, well, how they were perceived in the Victorian period, and it's really fascinating to hear some of the things that she has to say on it because we have lots of hang-ups uh, and and like you know in popular modern culture on the Vikings that, that, you know, that spawned from all of this. So it's good to know where some of those things came from. So I'm going to stop rambling and let's get into it. on Victorians and Vikings brought to you by Sophie Draheim, also known as Odin Scrotum on Instagram. So this is all about the revival of interest in the Vikings in the Victorian age. It's undeniable, examining primary sources written by opponents of the Viking raiders, that they were seen as wolves among sheep and as a violent, merciless group for many, many generations. Victorian Britain was the unlikely location of the public's revived interest in all things Norse. The 17th century saw the rise of pioneering scholarly publications detailing the beliefs and societies of the Viking Age, and these were available only to an exclusive readership in Britain. These works shed light on a highly positive aspect of Viking history, contradicting the medieval portrayal of them as devils. Such admirable traits of Viking life were praised as a complex spiritual system, even though it was heathen, moral values and highly developed trade routes. This small and exclusive readership of Viking history was enjoyed in the 18th century also, but it was Victorian Britain that saw its greatest revival, and the newfound fascination of linguists and archaeologists with interpreting runic inscriptions, Old Norse language, and extracting ancient jewellery from freshly excavated burial chambers. The period saw all manner of people obtain inspiration from the Viking Age in their daily lives, including unusual examples such as an English vicar, who spent much time poring over rural songs and examining their origins in the pagan Dane law, or a wealthy American woman who commissioned stained glass windows in her mansion that depicted the Norse expeditions to America. With the rise of nationalism and rediscovery of the glorious past, the Romantic period saw an increasing interest in Northern history, namely that of the Anglo-Saxons and Norse people. It was only around the dawn of the 19th century that the word Viking itself was recorded in dictionaries in its modern form. It is curious then that within half a century, Viking was a term rampant across various forms of media, including poetry, theatre productions, translations and reinvented fables. Such a commonly found term painted a pretty invariable picture of a Northmen stereotype that took over the imaginations of history enthusiasts, but this is clearly a missive of vitally important aspects of Norse society. It's hard for the word Viking to encompass the multifaceted Norse peoples made up of hardy farmers, prosperous traders, masterful poets and skilled craftspeople, when it has held such clear connotations with just a martial lifestyle and violent conquerors in popular media. And this is a quote, but that Great Britain belongs to the North only, and that she has been wrong when in any period thinking herself belonging to the South, we can certainly state beyond all doubt. This is a quote from 1845 that perfectly illustrates the growing interest that British Victorians were showing in Norse mythology and history, 
and therefore the rejection of traditionally classic legends from Roman and Greek sources which were more fashionable at the time. When it came to Victorian archaeologists, creative guesswork often compensated for solid evidence. Eager Victorian eyes, enthused by wild imaginings of the Old North, searched for the outlines of Thor's hammer, Odin's spears, and runic shapes in unlikely locations. Whilst in the 21st century we often enjoy an overlap between the worlds of artistic interpretation, imaginative reinventions of the old ways, and scholarly academia, friction between these fields can emerge when we consider the differences in their goals. The reinvigoration of the past in media often comes with significant creative license. Liberties are taken when it comes down to presenting the truth of history, since things are often made more appealing to new generations by sprucing up certain aspects of the past and exaggeration. The tension between popular interest and academia was no different in the Victorian revival of interest in the Norse past. The inclusion of the word Viking in the title of a Victorian essay or novel was just as likely to be an instance of appealing Norse aesthetic to catch the eye as it was a genuine reflection of well-researched scholarship. Grammar books on Old Norse, or Old Icelandic and various other terms for the language at the time, began to emerge in the 19th century so that true fans of the subject could enjoy exclusive access to newly published editions of sagas and eddas that were being churned out pound a penny. Queen Victoria herself was rumoured to be descended from Odin and Ragnar Lothbrok at various points of her reign. In her court, she received an Icelandic scholar who recited a skaldic poem inspired by the Eddas, which was praised as the first performance by a skald in English court since one visited Anglo-Saxon king Ethelred in the 11th century, the famous Gunnlaugr Serpentung. The performances of um, The Ring of Nibelung was an event that had an unprecedented impact on the way in which Norse mythology and clothing was perceived. The cycle of four epic operas by Richard Wagner uh, were written in German and loosely focused on characters and plots from the Norse myths. Certain figures were fused into one, the chronology was rearranged and events simplified, but his source of inspiration was very clear. The first performance was in 1876, and whilst the cycle's events take place in Germany, its structure is modelled off those of ancient Greek dramas, and it was the representation of the Vikings and their gods through costume that held the most impact on the period's perception. Karl Emil Doppler designed the first costumes for Wagner's cycle, which included iconic horned helmets, whose persistence in modern depictions of Vikings can be accredited to this opera, winged helmets, lamella armour, Romanesque sandals and laurel wreaths. None of these designs were based on archaeological finds, but delighted the public, whose transportation to a fantasy realm through an epic opera was little concerned with the practical issues a Norseman might face on a North European battlefield in a pair of leather sandals. It is, however, worth remembering that Doppler's horned helmets, none of which have been unearthed in Viking grave sites, were actually inspired by those depicted on the Oseberg tapestry. The textiles found in the Oseberg Viking ship grave, the site where two elderly women were buried within a Viking ship in Norway, 834 AD, depict a religious procession of animals, wagons and people, some of whom wear costume. The character leading this, this procession appears to be an armed male figure in a horned helmet, who is larger than the others, and it has been suggested that this figure is Odin, with his status as king of all gods emphasised by his size. Certain features of the grave's contents, such as panels of the ceremonial wagon depicting intertwining motifs of cats, have contributed to archaeologists' theory that the older women buried may have been priestesses of the goddess Freya. 
Another textile fragment from the Osterberg burial chamber depicts a figure in a horned helmet. In one hand, he bears two cross spears, possibly suggesting the identity of Odin again, given the god king's affiliation with the weapon and his powerful spear, Gunknir. And he faces a man who appears to be clothed, clothed in a bearskin. It has been suggested that this scene depicts Odin facing one of his chosen warriors, a berserker who acquires the power of a bear by donning its pelt. This scene has its parallel in the one depicted on the Torslander plate from the 6th to the 8th century AD, portraying a one-eyed horned figure in an ecstatic spear dance, a cultic behaviour suggested to send warriors into a frenzy before battle. A central character in Wagner's play is Brunhild, a Valkyrie often attested to in Norse literature, including Volsunga Saga and the Eddas, but who was also part of the German courtly poem of Nibelungenlied, apologies if I didn't say that exactly right. In 19th century Germany, however, the Norse sources were viewed as less tainted by foreign influence on the continent, and therefore more Germanic in origin. Her depiction in both the operatic cycle and in various paintings through the, throughout the 19th century clearly set a precedent for the style that female characters playing similar roles, such as shield maidens, would adopt in later works of fiction. These include Tolkien's Eowyn of Rohan and Lagatha's portrayal in the very historically inaccurate but ever popular Vikings TV show. Brynhild and many other characters from Norse myths were even depicted with large shields befitting the style of Roman cavalry, while real Viking shields were smaller and more round so that they would fit on the backs when they were mounted on horses. The size of shields was limited by the length of a warrior's spine when riding as well. In the Romantic period, Thor himself was depicted like a Greek god, lacking all traces of Scandinavian origins such as leathers or furs in his armour. Nils Blomer's artistic depictions of the goddess Freya resplendent in a more modern clothing, seems to draw inspiration from more classical figures such as Venus, for example. Snorri Sturluson's sagas and accounts of Norse mythology were rebranded in 1889 by Samuel Ling, a Victorian philologist hailing from Orkney. His translation of Sturluson's work has remained as a principal influence on English releases of these sagas, and are often considered tarnished by his own strong political and personal agendas that permeate the work. The cover to Lang's 1889 translation greets readers with the image of Sturluson, brooding and solemn as he writes on board an absurdly sized ship, accompanied by Saga, or history personified. This figure is a female's, scantily clad and clearly influenced by Greek fashion and statues. Despite her dress, the confident stance of Saga embodies the Victorian's view of history and oral tradition as a sacred force of nature. The inclusion of long branch runes on the book cover, at a point where few academics were versed in the history and languages of ancient Scandinavia, were probably added to create a powerful sense of mystery and exclusivity to the viewer, and to mystify the common man. Ling was a Victorian who held particular responsibility in fabricating a skewed and often idealised concept of the Old North. His translations omit such unsavoury and coarse matters, such as the time when King Sigurd, insults an unsightly woman after demanding that he have a woman with his meal, instead depicting him as a saintly royal who pilgrimaged to the Holy Land and dined with Byzantine emperors. Despite this, Lang was responsible for popularising interest in Old Norse literature and myths, and was invaluable to shedding light on the lineages of kings, and even the mighty Odin, whose mortal beginnings are recorded in Inglinger Saga. Victorian Britain's admiration for romanticism and rediscovering nature are reflected in Lake's many translations and dissertations. He often praised Norwegian farmers and landowners as maintaining the spirit of their Viking ancestors, who he claimed possessed the human mind in a state of barbarous energy and action, and with the vitality of freedom, 
This was in opposition to minds in a state of slavish torpidity and superstitious lethargy as he considered the English. Lang's blatant hostility towards Catholicism and Britain's lethargy, which he blamed on Anglo-Saxon origins of reserving Latin education for the elite, and excessive spirituality cannot be overemphasised in his work. His writings on the Vikings presented them to his Victorian audience as technologically advanced shipbuilders, free from the constraints of monkish life, whose oral traditions passing down sweeping sagas and ancient myths were wrongfully wiped out by Christianization. Therefore, Lane and those who followed him in the desire to make the Old North accessible to the common reader, always attempted to translate the sagas into a form of English combined with features of northern vernacular, avoiding the Latin of the old elite. Victorian English was so influenced by Latin and French language, however, that this proved an immense challenge for translation. In 1857, a great attempt was made to introduce Victorian children to Norse mythology through the publication of The Heroes of Asgard and the Giants of Jotunheim by Annie and Elizabeth Keary. The story follows children who desire to learn more about the myths of the Old North and whose parents teach them more and more about it across the days of the week, which they point out have their origins in the naming of Germanic deities, such as Woden's Day, Thor's Day. This and many other retellings of Norse myths were popularised with some scholars hoping for some young son or daughter of Odin to write a Teutonic epic based on the Eddas, which would overturn Europe's neglect of the North's rich cultural tapestry. It is interesting to trace the history of Viking representations in popular literature and media, such as the description of Gudrun's son in Vinland Saga, which tells of the Viking expedition to North America, as the first Yankee by an eccentric Victorian novelist. Vinland Saga inspired many 19th century novels published in America by writers clearly enamoured by the idea of an alternative history to the country's settlement. The same author, Ballantyne, reduces the role of Freydis, a strong-willed and fierce woman who accompanied the expedition, to that of comedic value clearly reflecting a need to conform to societal expectations at the time of his authorship. Many other Victorian novelists echoed Lane's hatred of Roman Catholicism, frequently condemning Southern Europe in their literature as a breeding ground for slavery and degeneracy, contrasted with the vibrant sagas of the Free North. Many adaptations of Norse myths and sagas were also adjusted to accommodate Victorian family values, thus changing their plots significantly and placing less praise on the solitary, wayward lives of young men who left their homes to raid abroad. This blog has merely scratched the surface of Victorian literature that popularised the Vikings and the many men and women who contributed to its revival of popular interest. Tensions and contrasts between Greco-Roman and Old Northern literature and oral traditions, mounting obsession with the Vikings on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and the exclusivity of source material to learned academics all contribute to the complex history of Victorian revival of the Vikings. Latin and ancient Greek have consistently remained more popular subjects of study than Old Norse, and it seems that worldwide fascination with Southern European pantheons still remains more deeply embedded with interest than the Vikings. Groups claiming either heritage or interest with the Viking Age that followed the Victorian period have often come with slightly darker agendas, especially those actively supportive of Nazism or Nazi sympathisers. Despite this, Viking culture, literature and art have continued to pervade everyday life, especially with the rise of social media and television shows which can bring the iconography of Vikings to the masses. Axes, longships, pagan idols, temples, inaccurate helmets and much more. It has taken time to shrug off misconceptions about the Vikings that were invented in the 19th century, such as their classical depictions in art and incorrectly translated literature, 
So it is inevitable that new and existing misconceptions held today will also take years to replace with objective historical fact. Viking culture's poignant myths about a pantheon of complex gods, sagas telling heroic epics and tragedies of the Old North, appeal to academics, neo-pagans and general readers alike as a platform on which modern political agendas can sometimes be projected. It is at such an intersection that all those with interest in Viking history should hold themselves accountable for pursuing the objective truth about both pre-Christian religion and historical fact, and delegitimize the false claims to history made by those with personal agendas. Well, that's bloody awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Glad to hear. Yeah. I you know, when, uh, when we talked about possibly collaborating on... When we talked about collaborating on some of this stuff, um, you know, I thought that this was a really interesting bit to get to because, you know, so from my point of view of what I do with artwork is almost deconstructing some of the ideas that we have that have built up in the, you know, possibly... Yeah, from, from this this point with the with the Victorians and some of those deeply embedded ideas and trying to yeah reconstruct them and find out what's there and where you know where the bullshit stops and mm -hmm. where the history begins and I think it's really interesting to sort of hear put in those those cold terms about where some of those prejudices come from absolutely absolutely and you know that we were always going to find things to relate to when we study history such as in this period, Victorians really related to, you know, Vikings when they were discovering them in literature because the Victorians were such a pioneering people to themselves at the time. They were expanding um, their empires with colonies and they were improving their industry through railway constructions and stuff like that. And to them, the Vikings were pioneers of their time as well. And that was really admirable and they really related to that. And of course, people are always going to try and find things to relate to in stories of ancient times because those are our ancestors to some extent. So I completely agree with that. And it's inevitable that sometimes people will misconstrue history and relate to the wrong things as well as positive. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. They also weren't burdened that by that point of the association with the Vikings or the Nazis. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, but also on that point, it's also, it's really fascinating. I've heard a few people point this out, like uh, the dude from, from uh, Brute Norse. I bloody love his stuff. Uh, you know, he, he points out as well about, about saying that the Nazis had a much, much larger emphasis on the Greek and the Roman... Um, sort of uh, their use of the cultural references in their iconography and um, and all of that and how almost the Nordic stuff got thrown under the bus when it came to it because there's still so much within Europe now that was still so deeply connected with that idea of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire that the Nordic, you know, there's just like, let's use that as a scapegoat. 100%. And, yeah. you know, there are some... Some of the Norse sagas and myths are probably a little bit unsavoury to certain agendas that, um, you know, Nazi sympathisers or Nazis would um, adhere to. You know, there are tales of Norse myths such as, you know, that include uh, gender changes, bestiality, and when Loki transforms into a mare and bears Sleipnir um, after mating with a stallion. Things like that don't exactly conform to Nazi ideals in every aspect, so certain things will just get overlooked and, 
it's never going to appeal to somebody's political gender in every way, but people do pick and choose what they want to see out of history and how to use it to their advantage. So, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That was bloody awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I say we should leave it at that then for now. But thank you so much, Sophie. Very welcome. It was really fun to um, explore this subject a bit more and share it with you guys. So, thank you. Cheers. Yeah. Great. Write us in and ask any questions you have and we'll definitely try and answer them. <laughs>